0: Nicholas Bornois of Capitaling, I'd like to welcome you to uh, another very uh, important and interesting panel on the topic of U.S. flag shipping in the international markets. We have a number of panels that were discussing the Jones Act uh, side of the business, so now we are going to have a panel that will talk on U.S. flag shipping in the international markets, uh, and I am delighted uh, to have with us a terrific uh, uh, panel. Uh, I will turn it over to Dan Rogers uh, from Watson-Farley-Williams, who is our moderator, and uh, Daniel is going to introduce our speakers, uh, but I would like to say a big thank you to Allison, to Nick, to Patrick, and, and to Will for joining um, this uh, top panel. Thank you very much, and uh, Daniel, the floor is yours.
1: Thanks, Nicholas. I'm Dan Rogers. I'm a partner with Watson-Farley-Williams. and Williams and we have probably one of the largest uh, commitments to the maritime and offshore industries on a global basis. In the United States, uh, we practice all areas of U.S. maritime law as well as advising on other aspects of the maritime spectrum such as Marshall Islands and Liberian law. We do both international shipping and of course we also advise on the Jones Act, my partners, Chris Belisle, Daniel Polarski and I have quite a bit of, of work on that. But today's panel is something different than, as Nicholas pointed out, than what we've been hearing from previously, and that concerns U.S. flag shipping and international trade or what is called registry shipping. And we have a very strong panel of participants here today. Um starting uh, to on my screen, at least in the upper left hand corner is Allison Kingsley of Nova Infrastructure, where she is a founding partner and where she serves on the board of directors for Bold Ocean, which is a conglomerate of companies in the maritime industry, including and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Skyler Lines Navigation and Argent Mer- Marine Operations, which are companies that actually are operating ships in uh, under U.S. flag. We also have uh, to my right is Will Terrell, who's the President of US Ocean LLC. We also have in the lower left hand corner for me, uh, Nick Fafutis, who is the Executive Vice President of Governmental Trade for American President Lines, which is a subsidiary of CMA CGM. And finally, we have Patrick McCaffrey, who is the General Counsel with Maersk Lines Limited here in the United States. Um, I'd like to give each of the panelists, starting with Allison, an opportunity to briefly explain uh, what your companies are doing in the industry. So go ahead, Allison.
2: Great. Thanks, Dan. So I am a poor substitute for some of the excellent and expanding team we have based out of Annapolis at the Bold Ocean and the family of companies. You're right, Dan. um, You named a couple of them, but we have a series of companies underneath Bold Ocean's umbrella. That operate in the U.S. flag, so I'm um, one of the. Fa- I am the founding partner of, of Nova Infrastructure. I do sit on the board of Bold Ocean, um, committed to the U.S. flag mission. Certainly committed to the Mariners and the Bold Ocean family of companies. We operate a diverse fleet of vessels. Um, one of the more diverse in terms of the types of vessels um, that we operate under the U.S. flag, and I think are committed to the growth of the industry and so excited about this panel. Um, Nova Infrastructure is a middle market um, infrastructure investor. We provide thoughtful growth capital to essential businesses. So that's kind of our background, but I'm really here representing Bold Ocean.
1: Thank you, Allison. Uh, Will, tell us a little bit about US Ocean.
3: Uh, thanks, Dan. Uh, yes, uh, US Ocean is a US flag operator with seven multi purpose vessels engaged in the worldwide trade. Six of those seven vessels are uh, U.S. flag registered vessels, five of which are involved in the MSP program. Uh, The vessels trade from uh, anywhere from uh, Antarctica uh, to uh, the the farthest regions of uh, the Amazon River in in Brazil. Uh, The vessels are all self-sustaining um, so they, they have the unique capabilities of going to places without infrastructure and delivering infrastructure to those, uh, those locations. Uh, we're proud to be uh, a participant in uh, the U.S. government programs and to be a uh, U.S. flag operator in the worldwide trade.
4: Excellent. Nick, tell us a little bit about APL, what it's doing these days. Thank you, Dan. Uh, American President's Lines is a subsidiary of CMACGM Group. We uh, currently operate nine uh, U.S. flag vessels under MSP. Uh, we have a long history in supporting the U.S. government and, and our, in our troops across, uh, across the world, uh, over 170 years of history. Uh, we currently operate uh, primarily in the Trans-Pacific, uh, but also in the Middle East. And we're also uh, very proud to continue to be part of, of U.S. flag shipping Uh, supporting our our mariners and supporting the overall economy. Thanks. Uh, Patrick, tell us about
1: Maersk Line.
5: Thank you, Dan. And uh, thank you all for this invitation, this opportunity to uh, take part in this discussion. So Maersk Line Limited is based in Norfolk, Virginia. We are the U.S. subsidiary of the Danish uh, shipping um, line, AP Mola Maersk. We operate uh, 34 U.S. flag vessels, and uh, we operate in four different segments, uh, both uh, container and roll-on, roll-off, as well as tankers and uh, Navy support with regard to uh, gray bottom uh, vessels. We, uh, we are the largest participant in the MSP Maritime Security Program with 23 vessels, and at any given day, we have over 750 mariners employed uh, in worldwide Operations, uh, which makes us the largest commercial employee of American seafarers, which we're very proud of. Uh, thanks again.
1: Thank you very much. Now, we've heard a little bit about the maritime security program. And of course, everyone might also be aware of the uh, military sealift command programs. Um, but maybe to get a, a grasp of how the US flag fleet fits into the world fleet by contrast and see how it breaks down. Um, Eleni, could you um, put up the PowerPoint, and Will, could you take us through it since you prepared it?
3: Uh, Happy to do so. Um, Yeah, what's depicted on the screen here for everyone is a snapshot of the US flag international trade vessels. And to give you some context about how this compares to the world fleet, uh, we'll break it down into kind of two components. Um, Generally speaking, the world fleet is around 58,000 vessels. About 15,000 of those are vessels that are engaged in the carriage of chemical cargoes, liquid cargoes, uh, oil, and the like. As you can see here in the US flag international trade, there are currently eight tankers that are under US flag uh, as a whole. Uh, So when you compare that relative to the world fleet, uh, the percentage of US flag international trade vessels as opposed to the world fleet is about 0.05% of the world fleet. Moving to the dry cargo side, there are approximately 37,000 vessels that are engaged in the, uh, that are are part of the world fleet. Um, That consists of uh, general cargo vessels, PCTC ro rows, containers, bulkers, and and other uh, dry cargo vessels. Uh, In the uh, US flag, There are a total of 75 vessels uh, that are on the dry cargo side, uh, making the U.S. flag registered trade about 0.20% of the world fleet. Uh, Of these U.S. flag international trade vessels, 60 are involved in the maritime security program, Uh, 11 are under uh, MSC charters, and there are 12 that are engaged in the carriage of of US financed uh, cargoes and available uh, uh, to the US government in the event of a need. Um, you know, all the operators who are in the US flag market are here because it provides an opportunity to carry cargoes which are for which there's a preference for carriage on US flag vessels, or because there are long-term US government uh, uh, charter opportunities. The benefits that uh, taxpayers and other American citizens really have. From the U.S. international trade is there is a merchant marine that ensures both economic security as well as national security at a fraction of the cost that it costs the government to build and maintain vessels that are part of uh, U.S. international trade.
1: Okay. Thanks very much for that overview, Will. Just one quick question, and I don't know whether you'd have the information handy. How large was the fleet, say, 20 years ago or
3: even 40 years ago? In 2010, the uh, fleet was about 106 vessels. So we've seen over a 20% decline in the fleet uh, in the past 12 years.
1: Do, Do you expect there to be an increase in the fleet?
3: Uh, we would we would certainly strive for that and uh, like for that to be the case. Uh, I think some of the other panelists can talk about some of the opportunities that uh, might be out there uh, in a sentence that we could kind of create in order to create those opportunities.
1: Well, let's hold that thought and come back to it. Let's talk about the competitiveness and the challenges for US flagged vessels in the gro- in in the in the global industry. Um, I think a starting point might be to talk a little bit about compliance issues. Um, Patrick, would you perhaps like to start with that?
5: Yes, uh, thanks, Dan. So uh, anytime you bring a vessel, so in the international fleet, it, the, the one thing that's different from Jones Act, I think that's important to mention is that the vessels do not need to be um, built in the United States. So. You can take vessels that are operating under foreign flag or trading internationally, and you can, quote unquote, flag them into the U.S. fleet. Um, And to do that, the first thing you need to do or the first thing that we do at Merce Line Limited is we do a gap analysis looking at the international standards uh, as opposed to the U.S. government, uh, U.S. Coast Guard standards. And I think just as a a placeholder, we look at about a $250,000 cost to bring a vessel into US flag. That increases based on uh, positioning costs, repositioning costs for tankers, it may be more. There's some other issues that, that uh, factor in. So it could be significantly more than that. So I think the first hurdle that you have uh, with regard to cost, and I think there's two main cost uh, centers, one being labor, the other being regulatory, uh, is the cost of in flagging and getting um, you know, the COD and the COI from the U.S. Coast Guard, which, which again, can be significant.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, would anybody else like to comment on uh, what uh, Patrick just touched upon about some of the compliance issues? Um, Allison, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: I think there are opportunities around the compliance issues as well. I mean, I, I think the those of us who operate the U.S. flag are proud that we have some of the highest standards in the world, meet and exceed them. I think that uh, it goes across from kind of the operating operating side of the business, but also in terms of some of the aspirations around um, maritime environmental standards and the like. So I, I think there are certainly costs. And, and I think Patrick did a good job outlining those. Some of those can be um Substantial if you if you think about moving a, a vessel into the fleet, but I think the opportunity set can also be substantial on the other side. And I do think that there are some of these um, aspirational parts of the U.S. flag that are not present in the the rest of the fleet, as Will mentioned.
1: Excellent, Nick. What's the view from
4: APL? Well, I, I think really when you when you look at what, what Patrick pointed out and listening to his and. and, and what Allison said as well, it really is focused on the cost. Um, the, the cost to, to run a US flagship is, is significantly higher. So when you're making decisions about shifting your assets around the world, uh, what that asset is going to generate uh, and where it fits within the overall fleet, um, it, it's, it's difficult from a cost perspective because you've got to be very, very careful. So it really at, from a financial decision, you really have to look at how you cover the cost of that asset and it's, and it's very challenging given given the environment that you have to work in.
1: Now, are these costs mainly related to labor costs of the seafarers, or is it also meeting the enhanced uh, re- inspection and other requirements imposed by the United States Coast Guard?
4: Well, to flag in, obviously, it's going to cost compared to other other places where you can flag a ship, and of course, labor. Right? I mean, those are the two big components.
1: Okay, uh, Will. How do you see that? Or do you face uh, similar issues, of course? And
3: yeah, w- I, yes, we do. And I mean, I think the other panelists kind of described it uh, uh, described it well uh, in, in that way.
1: Okay. Well, let's let's turn over to how do we bridge what mounts to this operating differential gap? What uh, what are the uh, main you know ways to do that? And uh, maybe, Allison, um, I could start with you on that.
2: Well, I should say that I do think we have a cost advantage relative to some Jones Act because of the ability to move a foreign flag vessel into the U.S. flag. So it, I think it's all based on what the comparison is around right. costs. Um, maybe you can repeat. I guess, where, where would you like to head, Dan?
1: Well, I think let's start talking a little bit about tax incentives, governmental subsidies and um Anything else that you might think would be useful in that? Let's talk about those two prongs.
2: Well, maybe we should start with the demand side. And and so to some extent, and I think it's been referenced, cargo preference laws, um, most of them have been extraordinarily stable. Some have been a little bit dynamic, particularly... Um, the XM Bank um, cargo preference has changed over time. I think food aid has changed over time, but generally longstanding, bipartisan-supported, multi-decade legislation and support of the U.S. flag. That's created demand. I think um, one of the notes that Will said is, I think the supply of the vessels is tightly constrained at this point. And so there is an opportunity here to think about growth in the U.S. flag to meet the demand, um, to meet the objectives, including, I think, a current focus of the government around the what I would call the domestication of the supply chain and U.S. flag yes. being able to step in and allow both government as well as commercial actors to feel the security, uh, Will mentioned it earlier, the economic security of having a U.S. flagged operator, um, partnered with them for the kind of resilient supply of cargo. And so I think uh, when you think about it from a demand perspective, there are costs for the U.S. flag fleet when you're shipping on the U.S. flag fleet, but there are also some uh, opportunities around what that could mean, particularly given the dynamic situation we're in right now.
1: Excellent. Um, Will, what's your view on that?
3: Yeah, look,
2: um, to follow up a
3: little bit more on what I said previously, Uh, you know, the demand side of the business is government finance cargoes. And that really falls in the area of what Allison was talking about with cargo preference, coming in the way of military goods and military charters, humanitarian aid cargoes, civilian agency uh, sponsored programs or goods, uh, as well as cargoes that are financed uh, by uh, the XM bank. Um, and, And the cargo preference laws have been around since the early 1900s. Uh, and, and does provide a base of cargo that's critical for the, for the U.S. flag fleet as a whole. Um, you know, I think the, uh, the future opportunities for the fleet really come in connection with the development of programs that are more incentives uh, to ship on board U.S. flag vessels. And Allison mentioned uh, in the context of, uh, of tax benefits or, or other incentives, for US exporters or importers uh, for shipment on, on US flag vessels. And I think that's an area that really needs to be a focus and attention uh, for us kind of going forward. I think one of the things that has come out of the past couple of years of the pandemic that we've really lived in is, uh, is uh, just kind of everyone's got a lot of attention and focus now on kind of what the supply chain is and how it works. Um, No one cared before, just as long as their Amazon package showed up on time, but now in the disrupted environment we've really lived in, this concept of, wow, the supply chain is really important and the importance of it to our economic security as a nation has become uh, really highlighted. In the US flag, we've always known that we were important uh, from a national security perspective and with the economic uh, security being more of a secondary consideration, quite frankly, I think they're they're almost on par now uh, in conjunction with what we've experienced in the past couple of years.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that very thorough explanation. I'd like to turn over to uh, Patrick and Nick on this point because obviously you guys are you know, operating a slightly different uh, type of uh, service. And I'm wondering you know, whether, you, whether you see similarities into what Allison and Will were discussing. Maybe I could start with you, Patrick.
5: Uh, thanks, Dan. Absolutely. And, and I think if you just take a step back and, and you take Will's graphic uh, slide, there's basically 100 percent overlap between U.S. flag vessels in the international fleet and U.S. government programs, whether it's uh, MSC charter, the maritime security program. And so, you know, if you if you take the maritime security program, the current subsidy per vessel is about five point three million per year. And there's been a lot of analysis and and there's a lot of attention paid by the U.S. government to where should that subsidy be to make up for the the, uh, additional of the higher operating costs of U.S. flag vessels on a year to year basis. And, you know, I think through that analysis, they would tell you that that number is more like six or seven million dollars. And so the MSP program does not make up for the entire uh, higher operational uh, differential and so what happens is, is then you need to have access to that U.S. government cargo. So that's where the subsidy program and the U.S. government and Pell Cargo uh, come together in the Maritime Security Program. And, and I think what Will is saying is exactly right in that if we want to expand the U.S. flag fleet, we really need to look at uh, you know solutions that offer incentives for commercial shippers to to use U.S. flag. Right now, uh, U.S. flag um, ships about two percent. Of uh, the U.S. Uh, on the commercial side, uh, obviously that's nowhere near where it needs to be. If you want to talk in terms of economic security and, and also national security, and uh, you know, I think that that's really the challenge. Is that you know this the, the U.S. flag has really been tied to national security requirements. Where are the mariners that we need to train in case we have national security issues? Where are the vessels we need to support the logistics? solutions for the US military. And I think we need to look broader than that. And we need to look at the economic security and the fact that, you know, we are a maritime nation and we need the maritime commerce that, that reflects that.
1: Thanks, Patrick. That's very interesting to hear. Now, Nick, also with APL being a subsidiary of a foreign uh, much larger carrier, do you see similarities in what, uh, what Patrick was describing?
4: I, I, I agree with, uh, with all the comments that have been made by, by, by the other panelists. So when you look at incentives and when you look at building demand, you've got to build that from the ground up. And building it from the ground up is looking at a larger market segment, right? And then incenting that market segment to use the U.S. flag. So that's tax incentives, which have already been brought up. I think well, there should also be coupled with operational incentives, that really chase that cargo toward U.S. flag vessels. And then we as companies can then work with those retailers, importers, exporters, whatever it may be, right, to create a solid partnership to really support the U.S. flag program. And then in turn, that more cargo volume supports more vessels, supports more mariners. Then we achieve that goal, that national security goal, right, that, that we've talked about. And then the overall health of the U.S. flag fleet has a lot brighter future than continuing to depend on the same cargo base that we all look at every year. So really we need to grow that foundational cargo, right? To build our future. And then we have a lot more options of what to do with the flag fleet down the line when we know we have a strong foundation of clients and the cargo that comes with it.
1: That's excellent. Let me ask a follow-up question to that. I mean, especially given your role at APL, Uh, do you think that there is um, uh, political support for this on a uh, broad-based basis? Or do you think that there might be some political headwinds? I mean, notably, um, certain uh, senators and congressmen in landlocked states like Utah have gone so far as to take out billboards against the Jones Act that are appearing on the Cross Bronx Expressway in New York City. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have to wonder... You know, do we have a, a, a good view on that as to whether there would be proper governmental support in the form of either tax incentives or other governmental programs that uh, would help increase demand? Do you have a feel for that, Nick?
4: Well, I, I think it's difficult to say because I know a lot of the, uh, the the content of the incentives are being drafted, they're being worked on. And I know there's some support and, and, and detractors, as, as you said. What... What you're talking about here is at least how we look at it is this is a creation of jobs. Those are maritime jobs, but also keep in mind there's also a lot of jobs that are created down the line. The supply chain is not just ships, right? And I think we've learning that the hard way, right? This year, given or the last two years, given this chaos that we're dealing with in the overall supply chain. But there are jobs downstream, and those are all American jobs, and we can't forget that, right? So American ships, American seafarers, American jobs that support those ships, that is all part of one chain. And that's really where the partnership comes in with importers, exporters, again, whatever they may be, along with those American flag vessels with a core base of cargo. So I I would say to to anybody that would be a detractor to this, that we're all in this together and all of this supports American jobs. So I, I think it's something that we should at least start to look at for our future of the overall fleet
1: let's talk a little bit about uh, one particular category of jobs and those of course are um, uh, merchant uh, seamen here in the United States um, will do you have any views on whether we have enough merchant seamen to really expand the fleet do we have enough now to actually operate the fleet at full capacity
3: well look I mean I think uh, I think Marad has talked extensively in um, in a number of forums about uh, about the the mariner issues and and uh, and the need to focus on it to to uh, have sufficient mariners to, to meet the needs uh, of of the country as a whole, um, we can get there, uh, you know. I think, but we're we're on the edge, um, and and uh, kind of uh, the focus attention uh, on it uh, is is important to uh, to get uh, uh, get the mariners uh, involved and and. Uh, and make sure that we have them for for the national security and economic security uh, needs of the country.
1: Allison, thank you, Will. Allison, given that some of the uh, group companies in Bold Ocean include uh, crewing services, what's your view on that?
2: Well, I thought Will was spot on. Focal is causal. So if you have increased demand for economic security, for which the U.S. flag is a critical mechanism by which to secure that, um, and that's really, I think, from my perspective at least, bringing some of the supply chain, the transportation supply chain into U.S. hands. And then you also have, I think, there are you know, current tensions in the world right now, which suggests, and if you look at the, the government, the Department of Defense plan, the defense budget around where they're headed in the next 10 to 20 years, you see very clearly there will be increased need for national security, the U.S. flag being a critical mechanism to meet the government's goals. So I do think there's actually uh, trailing government incentives that they they've trailed kind of I think the uh, the leading indicators here about around demand so we need to and I think Patrick brought this up clearly think about the incentive piece of this but I also think on the labor piece focus causal so we we agree I mean let's focus on um supporting our mariners uh if that requires and I think it should as demand and the U.S. flag space expands expanding that I think that that we would welcome that uh, there, If you look across kind of intermodal transport, be, look, looking beyond mariners and looking at other kind of critical members, be it rail or trucking, you're having some of the similar constraints on labor. And I think there are real opportunities to focus on improving and expanding labor, be it through uh, training, incentives that go to labor, um, you know, working with the unions to try to figure out how best to serve the mariners, to serve the government, to serve the other commercial operators, and ultimately to expand the U.S. flag fleet.
1: Thank you. Um, I have a sort of a flip side to that question. You brought up um, the Department of Defense and the programs that it supports and national security requirements I think have been discussed right. in, uh, by all of you. Should we look to reduce or expand those Programs? I mean, do we w- really want to be closely, so closely tied and dependent upon Department of Defense programs and national security requirements? Or is there a- an ability to grow the fleet and grow the industry without that? What do you think, Allison?
2: I think it's a hybrid approach. I think both the commercial and the governmental side of the US flag, we're, cri- we're providing that critical support today. We can provide more. As I've stated, I think there will be increased demand on both sides. So I don't think. I don't think it's, I think they're highly complementary. I don't think it's one or the other. Um, so I do support the continued expansion of the US flag fleet around kind of the defense, and government, and military support. But that's not the only use of the US flag. The US flag is, is very resilient and much more flexible than I, I, I think maybe common knowledge might suggest.
1: What's your view on that, Nick? I see you nodding your head.
4: No, I agree with what Alan said completely. It's, uh, it, it needs to be a hybrid approach. Uh, but you need to have the, the, the assets that we operate be commercially viable for the long term. So that comes with the cargo. Right. And again, going back to the comments about growing the cargo base, once they're commercially viable, that means you're there for when the government needs you or when the government has that time of need, national security issues, all the points that have been brought up. So de- definitely have to be go hand in hand.
1: Excellent. Well, Patrick, let me ask you this: um, Do you do you see a way to grow the client base for um, U.S. flag shipping?
5: Are you talking about in terms of uh, non-traditional or or non-governmental customers? Non-governmental, yes, exactly. Yeah. So I think you know we we've talked a little bit about it. You know, obviously the the incentives have to be there for the shippers, and you know, right now, uh, considering the, the higher operating cost for U.S. flag Um, you know, it's difficult to match, you know, foreign flag shippers with regard to rates. I mean, that's obviously right now, it may not be the case uh, with what's going on with the supply chain and, uh, and uh, the the post COVID uh, logistics issues that we're facing in the country. But but I think, you know, things like tax incentives, where shippers can get uh, credits for for shipping on US flag, those are the kind of things that we have to look at. you know, th- there's maybe an opportunity ESG, you know, AP Mollermersk has, has been very, uh, very, very forward and very aggressive on ESG and, and reducing carbon footprints. What if, uh, you know, in, in the future to incentivize growth in this area, um, you know, if you wanted to ship things like green methanol or biodiesel ha- inside or, or in in or out of the United States, it would have to be on a US flag vessel. Um, those are the kind of things that that we would look at and um, you know, try to incentivize those shippers to come over. And, and just to answer your, your previous question, Dan, I think to say we we're overly reliant on DoD, and maybe we should should we reduce that? I, I I consider that a false choice because the more U.S. flag ships, regardless of who the customer is, the broader labor base for U.S. flag mariners, the better off you know the, the military is going to be because not only do they have access to the MSP ships that are trading day in and day out all over the world, 365 days a year, they've got to man up a number of, of reserve vessels that, that are currently on layup or, or in mothball that they've got to find mariners uh, to crew. And that's a, a huge challenge for the US government. And it's something that MARAD has been focused on for years in this, you know, how do we get more US uh, mariners? How do we get that labor base to be bigger? And obviously. The jobs will only come when the ships are U.S. flag, and the ships to be U.S. flag. we're going to have to attract capital, and, and this has got to be an attractive place to put capital, and there's only so much you can do, there's only so much cargo, uh, and o- only so many subsidy programs on the government side. You really, really got to tap into the commercial markets and to the commercial shippers and to expand that base uh, across the board, and, and everyone benefits economically and, and national security-wise.
1: Well, I I think that's a very good point. And, you know, you talked about putting capital into the industry. Um, You know, obviously in other parts of the globe these days, we're seeing a lot of um, finance agencies, arms of governments, whether they're export or otherwise, um, supporting um, the development, uh, the construction, development, and deployment of ships on a sort of guarantee the loan basis. Do you see any possibilities for that within the United States flag fleet?
5: I, I do. And, and, and one of the things that, uh, you know, it's it's a struggle for, for us on the commercial side, talking to the government is you have these programs like the Maritime Security Program and the subsidy is tied to an annual appropriation. Well, I'm making a capital investment that's, you know, a 20, 25 year investment. So it's a, it's a mismatch between the commercial expectation of the, of the commercial realities and the terms of the government program. And, and I think what you're talking about, Dan, is part of a, a bigger uh, problem, uh, you know, and, and uh, I know I harp on this a lot, so I, excuse me for anyone who's heard this before, but we need a national maritime strategy. And that maritime strategy has to look at all these issues. They have to look broader than, you know, an, an MSP program that goes on 10-year cycles. They need to look past what's available in the MSC charter, and they need to look at, you know, all aspects of, of uh, the, the ship industry, shipbuilding, the labor side, financing, insurance, uh, obviously uh, our, our vessel ownership and and, uh, and all the aspects together, I think holistically, because, you know, frankly, that's the way China looks at it. And uh, if you mm-hmm. look at the, what China's done in the maritime industry and the inroads they've made, um, you know, it's, it's concerning, and uh, you know it, it's something that you know we should look at and, and, and figure out you know what would make sense to the United States.
1: Yeah, I would I would tend to agree with that because as you pointed out with China, um, so much carriage on uh, Chinese owned tonnage you know does present I think a, a significant threat and certainly one would think that a, uh, a, 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 a leadership program could come out of that here in the United States to try and develop along the lines you've just discussed. Right, and Let's just
5: talk- one, well, I'm sorry, Dan, just one yeah. follow up that you can't just look at the vessel ownership, you know, that's one of the issues, you gotta look at financing, you gotta look mm-hmm. at shipbuilding, you have to look at all aspects of the industry behind the flag because the Chinese interest might not be uh, on, a, on a vessel that has a, a Chinese flag or is owned by a Chinese company. So I think it's very important as the United States look at the strategy to look at all of those different aspects of the of the industry.
2: No, I, ahead, like, I want to add something to that, because I think we are at a critical inflection point and there's been a failure. Oh of-
1: um, Allison seems to have frozen. Which is a shame, because I think she was really I, on. It was I, I, I agree with her entirely that we are at a critical inflection point. Really I'd in very way. much like to hear, you know, <laughs> the rest of her comment, but um, we'll have to wait until she um, thaws. <laughs> Similar, that I think has. Allison, you froze for a good thirty seconds.
2: Oh so no, we i were right I, at the
1: point of saying I was, we're at a critical I was sharing inflection brilliant point.
2: Insights.
1: Yeah, well, we we want to hear them. You were at a critical inflection point freeze. So freeze. Re- Rewind freeze. the tape to inflection point and go from there.
2: Okay, so I think we're at a critical inflection point for the U.S. flag. And there's been a failure of imagination around how to think about everything from vessel financing, government incentives, to the story around commercial cargoes for the consumer. So I think it's a very exciting time to be part of the U.S. flag. But I think, I think uh, we have the opportunity now to rethink some of the baseline assumptions around the U.S. flag. And so it, I think it's all of us would say it's an exciting time. I know at some point we're going to talk about growth in the industry, but part of it is what Patrick referenced around how to rethink the financial structuring of the business and and what Will and Nick have also talked about, about expanding the commercial side of the business.
1: Let me ask a follow-up question to that. And although it's not required that a uh, registry flagship be built in the United States, do you consider shipbuilding a component to that? Is it viable to have U.S. flag vessels uh, built in the United States and be not so completely out of the money to begin with, commercially competitive? Well,
2: I think they're... Built in the United States, it's a Jones Act vessel that might flood. So, so, so I think we that have a program true. for that. But yeah. it
1: does, yes. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, port conge- congestion and the uh, 2022 outlook in major ports. I know, Nick, that was something you wanted to do, to comment on. So, why don't you take us through that quickly?
4: Yeah, I, 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 I wish I could say it's going to get. It's going to be a rosy 2022, and unfortunately, the major ports in the U.S. We yeah, have very little of that. Um, I, I think with uh, there's still far too much cargo coming in and uh, not enough port infrastructure to manage it. So we're looking at our current situation probably through the end of the year, perhaps going into early 2023. Um, and, and if you think about just from a global perspective, just US flag aside, if you think about from a global perspective, the congestion today is not just isolated to the US. You have it in Korea, you have it in China, you have it in Europe. So on a running average, the global fleet is down by anywhere between 20 to 30% on a daily basis because ships are stuck. Whether it's LA, whether it's Oakland, whether it's Shanghai, whether it's Rotterdam, they're sitting. So that congestion is gonna, it's a domino effect and it's gonna continue throughout 2022, which means that we're gonna keep the, we're gonna stay with these challenges until that cargo starts to to the volume start to back off, and we can actually start to catch up, and the labor and the trucking, here especially, and I'm talking about the U.S. is able to manage those flows. So when when people look at the supply chain, they look at ships, and they say, well, it's it's a ship problem. It's not a ship problem. And I think even with the government report, the DOT report that just came out on the supply chain, they pointed to various things that are going that are going wrong or could be fixed within our supply chain. From data, from just general IT infrastructure, truckers, warehouse labor, obviously port infrastructure—all that's part of it. So uh, I I don't see that 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 getting any better. Uh, I I think what we need to do as a as an industry is continuing to partner with the government. I think they've done they're doing their best effort to make this work uh, with the various uh, uh, working with private industry, working with ports but that needs to be a continued partnership to make that work. And it can't be just at the ship level. It needs to be at a total infrastructure level if we're gonna be successful. Because this, this situation in itself is only driving cost up and it's only making our supply chain more and more challenging by the day. So we have, a, we have there's a lot of work that needs to be done.
1: I see, I see. Will, what's your thought on that?
4: Uh, look, I, I, I agree with,
3: uh, with uh, Nick's comments on it. Um, you know, it is it is a supply chain issue. It's not it's not a it's not a a shipping issue, uh, and the environment that we've been operating in of you know high demand and kind of a realization um, I think uh, across the country that hey look our inventories and our supply chain was set up was not <laughs> was was too thin, uh, and now trying to make up for that. In, in kind of a, in, in a disrupted environment from kind of a labor operational and other perspective it is gonna take a while to unwind. Um, I, but, you know, I think uh, like anything, uh, taking those lessons learned and making things more resilient for the future is the opportunity uh, that's there for the us.
1: I see Patrick, you're nodding your head. Do you have, would you like to add something to that?
5: Yeah, just, you know, real quick, I and, and this is uh, this is uh, uh, along the lines of what Nick and Will are saying, is that, you know, the, I know in the media, we, we like to have the optics and, and the clicks and all the rest of it. So it presents a good optic when you have 70 ships off the coast of, you know, Long Beach, L.A., but, you know, those ships aren't there because there's a logistics problem in shipping. Those ships are there because they can't unload the containers in the terminal. And the reason is because the terminal has nowhere to send containers that they have, because you've got inlet issues, whether at the railheads, whether at the warehousing, and so on and so forth. Very difficult problem. And I hope, I hope, uh, you know, our government takes a, a methodical and thoughtful approach and, and policy reaction uh, to what is a very, very complicated and complex uh, set of problems, and not just sort of point the finger or say, you know, this is this is where we think the issue is, because it's it's a it's from origin to destination, it's an issue.
1: Okay, Um, we're getting low on time and there is one question that I have up on my screen that might be logically following from what we've just been discussing and I'll read it to you. It um, comes in and says with a declining US flag fleet, why was the Energizing American Shipbuilding Act proposed by Congressman Uh, John Garamendi and Senator Roger Wicker, in 2016, passed over without serious consideration. The pillars of the act required by 2040 that 15% of exported LNG be transported by U.S. built flagged and crude vessels, and by 2032, 10% of exported U.S. crude be transported by U.S. built flagged crude vessels. Could this be brought back in the near future for serious consideration? Would anyone like to take a shot at that? (laughs) or <laughs> right, i'm gonna stop have yeah. to throw it out then um alice uh, take a shot yeah. go ahead Bo. Well, okay well
3: I'm, I'm not going to comment on the specifics of that piece of legislation and what happened but backing up to more of a macro macro perspective look we're in kind of a hidden industry no one cares uh historically no one's cared uh, and that's been one of the problems I think with uh, different initiatives that have gone on, as far as um, programs and and the like. The the current environment we're in, there's now attention to it, and I think people do care, and they recognize how important it is to them uh, in in connection with all aspects of their life. And and I think we need to uh, we need to use that recognition now uh, to to do some of these things to to put the U.S. flag in. A, in in, in a better spot.
2: This is my was my point around inflection point. I, I do think so. I, I'm uh, maybe Patrick's closer to that legislation from 2016. I don't I think 2016 was a very different environment for the U.S. flag than 2022. So at a high level, I think the movement of LNG on the U.S. flag is something that we fully support and are prepared to do. And I, I so I, I think the politics are different six years later, but I, I do also think the, the macro environment around this story and particularly specific to the US flag is different. And I agree with you, Will, like there's the US flag, um, no one's care, but I think we can change that. And I think part of that is kind of, is messaging to the different stakeholders, which is not, it is the government, certainly um, key stakeholder here, but not the only stakeholder that kind of matters in that story.
1: All right. Well, um, we seem to be coming to the end of our session here. We've got about one minute left. I'd like to uh, thank all of our panelists uh, who uh, provided all of the uh, wisdom on this on this day. And if anyone has one last thing they'd like to say, now would be the time to say it. Um, I'll leave the floor open for the 30 seconds we have left, and then I'll turn it back to Nicholas Barnozis.
2: And uh, thank you. I thank all the panelists and, and Dan for moderating and Nicholas for arranging it and for whoever was in the audience that we, we can't see. And and I think all of us are available if, that, if anyone wants to follow up personally.
4: Thanks. Great. Awesome. We'll,
0: well, thank you to everybody from uh, me as well. Great panel uh, and, and ter- terrific topic. And thank you for your insight. And Dan, thank you for doing the, uh, heavy lifting, uh, this, you know, moderating this, and of course, all of you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thank everyone. you. By the way, the slides that you showed were spot on. I mean, that was wonderful. It helped a lot. Thank you very much to everybody. Yeah.
1: Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you.